Hello and welcome to the District Podcast, brought to you by The Spectator World, the U.S. edition of The Spectator magazine. I'm contributing editor Chadwick Moore, coming to you from New York City. On Christmas Day, NASA, in conjunction with the European Space Agency, launched the James Webb Space Telescope, the largest, most expensive, and most advanced observatory of its kind, which is currently moving through space to a position 1.5 million kilometers from Earth, well beyond the orbit of the moon, where it will begin a 10-year mission observing the cosmos. One of the most exciting aspects of the James Webb mission will be the telescope's ability to determine the atmospheric composition of exoplanets as they transit distant stars and look for unusually high levels of certain gases like oxygen or methane that would indicate that planet has a biosphere. Life. Any distant alien civilization out there, should such a thing exist, using similar technology, would have been able to look at our own planet's atmosphere for at least the past one billion years and determine something very strange was going on here, something that could only be explained by the presence of life. Far less likely, but still on the table, is James Webb's ability to look for not just biosignatures around exoplanets, but technosignatures, indications that an advanced technological alien civilization is producing something artificial in or around a planet or distant star. It's difficult to say what would be more disconcerting, finding alien life or discovering that we are completely alone. So far, all evidence is pointed to the latter, but that may soon change. If alien life is discovered, it will fundamentally change how human beings see ourselves and our position in the universe. Or maybe it won't. NASA is preparing for the ramifications of just such a discovery. The space agency has reportedly engaged two dozen theologians to take part in a program at Princeton University to assess how humans will react if alien life is found on other planets and how that would impact ideas about creation, God, and human dignity. This is pretty profound stuff. We are joined today by one of the theologians taking part in the project, the Reverend Dr. Andrew Davison, University of Cambridge professor in theology and natural sciences and author of the book Astrobiology and Christian Doctrine, due out later this year. Dr. Davison, thank you for joining us. We'd like to think of this as a completely newfangled, modernly the uh, modern, thoroughly modern issue, rather, the idea of, of aliens, but it really isn't. Uh, you know, back in at least the 1600s, we have theologians who pondered such questions. Even this century in 2008, the Vatican's chief astronomer said that there really is no conflict between believing in God and the possibility of extraterrestrials. What would be the difference in how religion, or maybe specifically Christianity, grapples with finding, let's say, microbial life? Uh, such as in the atmosphere of Venus, lingering on Mars, or in the subsurface oceans of moons like Europa, here in our own solar system, versus the discovery of an advanced spacefaring civilization, perhaps with their own religious orders? It's very good to be joining you. And that is a great question. Whilst I was involved uh, with that project back in uh, Princeton, the people that came to visit us from NASA to talk to us about the science from time to time were very much encouraging us to think about the prospect of microbial life, since it seems to be much more likely for quite a long time uh, on this planet, all you would have had would have been single uh, cellular life. I suppose the, the main answer is that it would point to the universe being 
full of life, being, uh, you know, uh, what, how would you say it, being you know, charged with life. The idea that um, if elsewhere, even in our solar system, there was life and we could show it had an independent origin, then it would show just how easy it is for life to get going. And I think that would change our vision of the universe from being something that was mainly inorganic or entirely inorganic, apart from perhaps the tiniest little uh, pockets here and there, towards uh, life being an absolutely integral feature of the universe as a whole. And I think that would be that would be quite significant. Um, the other side of your question was an advanced spacefaring civilization. And I think there's something in the middle, which is human life as it has been for the past few t- tens of thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years, which would be uh, creatures that are self-aware, that have a sense of right and wrong, of hope, uh, a religious sense as well. And for me, the, the big transition to where it becomes theologically so interesting is once you've got creatures like that. I think coming to advanced technology is perhaps uh, less significant than that jump into self-awareness. Right. And, and with the way science is now, it would be th- that would probably be perhaps the, the, the most difficult to detect. You know, we can look at, we may be able to, with James Webb, look at a distant planet and say there is something happening there that is strongly indicates life. But we really wouldn't know any more about what that life looks like, what it is, whether it's a planet full of microbes, a planet full of, of human-like self-aware creatures, a planet full of dinosaurs. Uh, there seems to be that that we can we can say that perhaps life is happening or a civilization that's far more advanced than our own, perhaps building megastructures around their stars or something like that. We'd be able to see that. But there, in between, there would be this huge gray area that would probably drive us crazy not knowing. And it looks like it would be a long time before we'd be able to suss out what exactly is happening on those planets. Yes, that's something that has really struck me, that one day perhaps we get this uh, this signal that indicates that life is likely to be on this planet. And then the next morning, we're faced with the prospect of not really being able to tell anything in addition for hundreds of years, perhaps. Uh, and so I think we, we need to be prepared for um, a bit of a you know, hangover, as it were, that one day there'll be this euphoria and then the next day we'll have all these questions and at least with current technology, we're not going to be able to uh, to answer them. I suppose once we know that there are good candidate planets, we can start focusing radio telescopes there and see if there's any evidence uh, of anything that will be like a broadcast, for instance. With your specific work in, in theology, what is even just that realisation that uh, we aren't alone? What does that mean for religious traditions and how we see ourselves in in the universe? And is it compatible with most of the world's uh, largest religions? Well, you made that interesting point about how far back these discussions go. And in my own work, I uh, could trace it back to the middle of the 15th century. So there are two quite significant theologians, uh, one of them, Nicholas of Cusa, extremely significant, who wrote about it in the middle of the 15th century. And pretty much there's an uninterrupted tradition within Christianity of thinking about life elsewhere in the universe. And for the most part, people took it in their stride. So the fact that there hasn't actually been a great deal written about this question in in any great detail is because people just note it, think, yes, the universe could be full of other life. God would be the creator of all things. God would be interested in that. Uh, And then they just moved on. Um, So I don't think there's any reason for people to be threatened. And a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, perhaps a bit longer now, uh, Ted Peters over in uh, San Francisco did some ethnographic study 
where you know an empirical study of of asking lots of religious people from different traditions uh, whether they did think that their faith would be threatened by such a discovery and the answers were i think um in a sense surprising a lot less worried than you than perhaps one might think but the the patterns uh were not so surprising so generally speaking uh, Christians didn't find this problematic. Perhaps only some of the more conservative evangelical traditions uh, showed uh, more concern. But one of the interesting things about that study was they also asked non-believers what they thought the believers would respond. Uh, and the the atheists who were asked tended to think that the religious believers would be much more perturbed by it than actually they were when you asked them directly themselves. I, and I can't speak for... With, with any great authority about other religious traditions, but I, I know that uh, that Islam people often point to passages in the Quran that seem to suggest that there's life elsewhere in the universe. So I don't think that Islam would necessarily have a, a great deal of difficulty there. And there's been Jewish speculation about this from even earlier than that Christian writing in the 15th century. And a wonderful paper from a, a rabbi, uh, Norman Lamb, in the 1960s, which I still think is one of the best things that's been written on this topic. Yeah, that, that's interesting you bring that up, because there is this uh, impression, I think, particularly among atheists and non-religious people, that it would amount to this absolute crisis for the faithful. Uh, but I've never really been sure that's true. And if, if anything, if we did discover you know, uh, either an advanced uh, alien civilization or uh, somehow in some... Uh, uh, science fiction future that we were able to contact uh, just the self-aware beings on a planet, I think that the Christian response would simply be, now we have a whole new civilization in which we can spread the good word to them. I don't think that it would be necessarily that their their God has been wrong this whole time. I would point to two uh, two parts of the Christian tradition there that I think are helpful. One is this uh, very well-established belief in angels. So I don't think angels are the same sort of thing as extraterrestrial life. But it's important that he is a tradition that it's just built in the idea that there are other sorts of creatures, other sorts of extremely noble creatures, uh, which are uh, some, you know, in, in many ways considered to be um, more more advanced or more capable than we are. So the presence of, of angels within the Christian tradition already shows that it has a sense of it not being all about us. And I think I'd also point to the book of Job, where there's this magnificent section which finally silences Job's um, questions to God, where God takes him on a sort of safari and shows him all these different creatures, many of them perhaps mythical creatures or the more extraordinary creatures that are uh, in the world, and saying, no, were you there when I created this? Were you there when I created that? Um, it's, it's the idea that there's a lot more out there that we aren't necessarily the centre of everything is I think already there in the Jewish scriptures, the, the Christian scriptures in the book of Job. That's 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 really interesting. And you even you even mention in, in your book that that you believe a large number of people would would turn to religious traditions for guidance uh, in this in this situation rather than losing faith. They would be searching for more answers in, in religious texts. But this also brings up a, a, an interesting, you know, something I've always been interested in as well. And I, I'm, and I imagine perhaps with your work in, in the natural sciences, you have also is this idea that 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 uh, science and this kind of discovery and faith are adversarial and in conflict with one another, whereas the natural sciences, from my understanding, you know, not in the not too distant past, was always seen as a as a as almost a form of worship. It was you know God wanting us to be discovered, um, and and that no longer whether it's just media narrative or political messaging. 
uh, it seems to increasingly be presented as not the case. And I'm curious where you think and uh, where and how that came about and, and if you see it as, as uh, the same. I would say that there has been some really impressive historical work done in the past couple of decades about the relationship between religion and science that has pointed to the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, uh, as the point where the narrative about this changed. So I would say it's all about presentation. Uh, there's that saying that the people who win the war write the history. But I think in this case, it was the people who wrote the history that won the war by, in fact, a couple of important books around that time that told this story of an inevitable conflict uh, and and told a story of the past as if there had been this conflict. And that really lodged in people's minds right the way through the 20th century. People have uh, also pointed to the professionalisation of science in the 19th century. Previously, it had been quite significantly in the hands of clergymen, for instance. Um, and so one of the reasons that that there was this newfound sense of wanting to set religion and science apart from one another was this newly secularised, uh, just professional group of scientists trying to, to carve out uh, their terrain. And I would certainly say on the ground in my Cambridge College, which is a wonderful mixture of people from arts and humanities and sciences, social sciences, just you know, at the lunch table, I don't by any means come across this sense uh, of uh, antipathy on the ground. It's not so, not to say that uh, every scientist in the college is a religious believer. I wouldn't say that at all. But I'd certainly say that the idea that that science and religion are pitted against one another just isn't borne out in my experience of of the human beings that are involved in these forms of study. Going back to how we originally uh, what we were originally talking about, do you think that that we will be very soon, perhaps in our lifetime, discovering life out there in the universe? The thing that really changed everything was the discovery in 1995 of the first planet around another star. Because until we discovered planets around other stars, we couldn't be absolutely sure that there were any or that there were very many of them. So there had been two theories about how planets might form. One of them, which is associated with Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, uh, would have said that planets were common, that in the formation of stars, you also formed planets. But an alternative theory, which was about collisions, basically, said that they would be planets would be extraordinarily rare. And that had the upper hand until the middle of the 20th century. Uh, so the idea, just from modelling, that there might be plenty of planets was beginning to become accepted through the 20th century. But until we really found any, we didn't know whether that was going to be the case. And I think even the people who expected there to be planets have been quite surprised just how ubiquitous they are. So what's really changed is the idea that the 100 billion stars in our galaxy and maybe about 100 billion galaxies, uh, that planets are going to be uh, you know, around very, very many of those stars. Um, we're starting to therefore come to numbers of planets that are just very, quite difficult to, to, to speak about, you know, 10 to the 20, these sorts of, uh, these sorts of numbers. Um, so for me, that changes the statistics. And I think that you know, life is clearly not impossible. We're witness to that. Um, and so it would have to be extraordinarily unlikely uh, to happen in any particular place for us to be the only example. Uh, but that, you know, even if there was only one example of life in every galaxy, that still might be 
100 billion cases across the observable universe. It's just that we would never be able to spot it. So I think that even if we don't find any anytime soon, that doesn't mean that there isn't a great deal out there. It just means it's relatively uncommon across these enormous number of planets. So I'd like to be able to say more than that, but we just don't know whether it's pretty unlikely or extraordinarily unlikely or extraordinary, extraordinary unlikely. And even if it's the latter, there still could be plenty of life out there. It's just that we wouldn't come across it. Right. And, and you're right to say that that was a watershed moment when we did discover that confirmed first exoplanet. Now I believe that last check, we we're up to around 5,000 confirmed exoplanets, but that suggests that uh, there are uh, many, 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 many more out there that we just can't see or haven't confirmed yet their existence. But also it's interesting to think if we're, how people will handle this news because we've already sort of had it, you know, in, in during, I believe it was 1996, somewhere around there, if you recall, Bill Clinton had made announcement that we found evidence of microbial life in a Martian meteorite that landed. It looked like a fossilized microbe. And this was front page news that life confirmed. And it's since turned out that that wasn't the case, that scientists believe that this this structure that was found in this Martian meteorite was actually just a, was formed by natural chemical processes and was not actually living. Um, but even you can go back further than that to the late 1800s with the astronomer uh, uh, Percival Lowell, who observing Mars, believed that he was looking at uh, canals on Mars that were made by a civilization. And um, many astronomers and people accepted this and it turned out not to be true. The world didn't end. Faith didn't uh, collapse and have, have an absolute crisis. So we may be we may be more prepared for this information than we realize, especially when we understand now just how many planets are out there and how many of those planets are potentially habitable. They're both excellent examples. A, a literary example that I uh, I like to point to is in uh, Anthony Trollope's novel Barchester Towers. So pretty much the archetypal Victorian English novel. And at one point where he wants to show, I think, three female characters just discussing the sort of things that people discussed in uh, in, in drawing rooms, in uh, you know, well-to-do houses, he has them talking not only about life elsewhere in the universe, or actually in the solar system, but also about its religious implications. Uh, and he, he wasn't pointing to that or, or setting that scene up to be something unusual. It's just what people were talking about um, at that point in the 19th century. Or I could point further back to the 17th century when um, the bishop of then bishop of chester or at least later bishop of chester uh, john wilkins wrote a book about life on the moon he was convinced that there was life on the moon uh, he also founded the was one of the founders of the royal society the great english uh, scientific society so p- punctuated through history like you say we can find these examples where people thought that there was evidence of life elsewhere and didn't cause the kind of you know sensation or hysterical response um, that you might find in the War of the Worlds or something like that. Yeah, yeah, very true. And and we it, it uh, you know this um, we certainly it's it's a titillating topic and and people want to jump on this and think that there might be chaos, but of course there won't. There was even the uh, the, the famous War of the Worlds um, uh, broadcast uh, where you know the the, the urban legend of that is that people actually thought that earth was being invaded by martians and what it actually turns out it looks like the 
newspaper industry was trying to attack the radio industry and and they just drummed up a story that people actually believed we were being invaded when uh, no one really believed that i suppose it is it is one thing to discover evidence of life elsewhere and another thing <laughs> to suppose that one's being attacked i wouldn't mind if people uh, responded to that uh, with a, with a bit of consternation <laughs> right exactly uh, so this is this is a hot topic and you and the a lot of the uh, newspapers have been covering um this nasa program but uh but this is, uh, and you're beginning a lot of uh, attention for that as well, but this is just a small part of your work. Tell us about what else it is that you're up to and what you've been focused on in your work. Oh, thank you. Well, connected to this uh, previous uh, topic, I'm starting to collaborate with some of my scientific colleagues in Cambridge to think about the origins of life in the universe. And we're going to do that from a scientific perspective, theological, philosophical. Uh, I'm really delighted by the way in which my colleagues in the sciences in Cambridge are so open to collaboration with people from very different faculties. So the idea is to bring together people from all sorts of different traditions to ask what we think about the nature of life. And I think one of the benefits there will be for the non-scientists just to, to pose innocent but probing questions to the scientist uh, to perhaps pr provoke um, some thinking from new angles. So the origins of life are, certainly are an interest of mine. Um, I within within the sciences, I am really interested in the developments in evolutionary thought in the last couple of decades. So uh, if you had asked someone at the end of the twentieth century about evolution, then it seemed like it was all sorted out and it could be written down very concisely. It was often called the modern synthesis which had brought together Darwin uh, and molecular genetics. And in the last couple of decades, it's not that Darwin was wrong, but we found that things are a bit more complicated than uh, had been thought. So the particularly important is a new sense of the uh, exchange, the interrelations between genes and the environment. So whereas the evolutionary picture in the 20th century was often quite reductionistic, everything was just being reduced down to genes doing their thing. There's a new sense that um, that genes and the environment are uh, in a sort of uh, dialogue with one another. And also different forms of, um, of inheritance. So it's not just all about genes, but one can uh, pass on uh, inf information in other sorts of ways, like just the, the things that we do in the world, the way in which we change the world is part of uh, what we pass on to our um, to our progeny, um, this, this idea of, uh, of niche construction. So if, if we find a fit between an organism and its environment, it's not just because it's involved, evolved to fit that environment, but actually creatures also change the environment around them to, to suit them. And this, uh, as I say, none of this undoes the theory of evolution, but it brings in all sorts of dynamics that I think are, are really fascinating. And there's always a danger that people are going to be reacting, say, theologically to the science of 50 years ago. And uh, so I, one, one strand of my work is to think about some of these developments in contemporary biology from a theological perspective. And so where else can people, where can people find out more uh, information about this and this work that you're engaged in? Well, from the scientific side of things, I could recommend two books, a wonderful book called Extended Heredity, which was written by Russell Bondoriansky and Troy Day. Uh, and then perhaps slightly more advanced, but I think still a very um, accessible book, really. Uh, Eva Jablonka and Marianne Lamb wrote a book recently called Inheritance Systems 
and the extended evolutionary synthesis. I think those two books between them really uh, uh, present quite accessibly these developments in evolutionary thought. It's also a great book by Sonia Sultan called Organism and Environment. In terms of that being taken up into theology, um, there's someone in Australia, Nathan Lyons, who did his PhD with me a few years ago. He's writing a book on this from a theological perspective, but that's not quite out yet. We did edit a collection of papers in a journal together in Theology, Philosophy and the Sciences, beginning to think about some of these um, elements of the, as it's called, the extended evolutionary synthesis from a theological perspective. But it feels like it's quite early days to me, really, to be taking some of these things um, into account. And your own book, uh, Astrobiology and Christian Doctrine, is due out later this year. And that word astrobiology, people shouldn't be confused, doesn't necessarily mean little green men. I mean, you'd probably be talking about just simply the the uh, nature and structure of the universe for life to arise. And I imagine some of these uh, issues that you that you just discussed as well. Yeah, so uh, a while ago, people talked about exobiology, which was life outside or beyond the Earth. But more recently, people have talked about astrobiology because they've recognised that we already have one example of the capacity of the universe to harbour life, which is the life that we know on our own planet. So astrobiology uh, takes this, this global view of what it means for there to be life in the universe or what it means for the, the universe to be capable of, uh, of supporting life. Um, I also work on, on um, more philosophical uh, topics and some uh, some work in Christian theology. I think it's quite important to keep my hand in as a theologian as well as working on science. Um, so there was a book a couple of years ago uh, on uh, called a Participation in God, taking this idea of participation, which we uh, find well both from scriptural sources, but also Plato has been very influential here. And it's uh, the idea of of what it means for all of creation to be uh, to be derived from God to be a, a gift from God. So I take this idea of derivation or, or sharing, sharing in and sort of run it through all of, of Christianity and show what an influential idea that has been. Well, uh, Reverend Dr. Andrew Davison, thank you so much for joining us. Look forward to reading your book uh, when it comes out and uh, hope to speak to you again sometime soon. Thank you very much. I'm always delighted to talk about uh, topics in theology and science and thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.